You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Good morning. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. My name is Brad Marvin. As Rodney said, I've been here about six months. I am a church planting resident here. And it has been a great season for me. I've had the chance as I look out to meet almost, well, it feels like most of y'all. Some of y'all I've had a chance to get to know really well. And um, one thing that I've learned about people in general is that we're very different. There are all kinds of differences that we all have, even though we're in the same room right now. Uh, Ethnically, some of us are very different from the guy or the gal sitting next to us. Uh, Personality-wise, we're wired different ways. Age-wise, there's just differences all over. I would even say in this room, there's probably some who would consider themselves a Christian following Jesus. There's some that maybe don't, or doctrinal differences within the camp of Christianity. Differences exist in excess, even in this room. But there is one thing that I think we all share in common, whether you are a believer in Christ, whether you aren't there or whether you're different than the other guy theologically, we are all sharing something. And what we're sharing, I'm going to say the word and you're going to probably feel like, I haven't thought about that, but it's, as the Bible says, a desire, a craving for righteousness. Some of y'all are like, man, I've met a dude that thought he was righteous and I want to have nothing to do with that. It did not go well for me. I want to stay away from that. Bible basically explains righteousness in some terms, or it can be defined as the desire and the fulfillment of passing the scrutiny of life that we all feel. Uh, We can define it as ultimate acceptance or approval from something that's bigger than ourselves. Every single one of us has that innate desire inside of us. And it comes out in different ways, but it does not change the fact that we all want to be approved of. There's something we're aware of that's broken, and we want it to be fixed. I have four boys. Superheroes is my world. So I'm going to use an example Thank you for being patient with me. Um, I've pretty much seen every superhero movie that's out there. And one thing, as I was watching Spider-Man 2 the other night, I realized I've seen this movie like 17 times in the last two years, just over and over and over. Same movie, or different movie, same story. And what I noticed was the bad guy in it is always starting off to have some semblance of good in him, right? Like he's always desiring to, you know, help humanity out in some way, something goes awry, and that thing that goes awry, the thing that goes bad for him, is he faces usually some sort of rejection, some sort of, you didn't pass the scrutiny of life, you're not accepted, you're not approved of, and then Electro starts shooting electricity throughout the world, and he's angry, and his goal is to destroy the world because that desire in him to be accepted, to be approved of, runs so deep that when it isn't met, all he can do is produce evil. 
give you a more educated example. This isn't just within the bounds. This idea of righteousness just isn't within the bounds of Christianity. Um, Forbes magazine recently posted an article um, called The Three Things All Humans Crave and How to Motivate Anyone, Anytime, Anywhere. The premise of the article is to engage your employees by creating a culture for them where they are motivated to work hard. And those three things that provide the culture are this. Safety. Creating a safe place where people are not afraid to fail. The scrutiny of life to where they can try, fail, and still be accepted. Belonging. We belong to something much bigger than ourselves, and they know it, and they want to be a part of a team. They want to know that they belong and that they're accepted. And the third, mattering. Providing a culture of mattering. You are appreciated. You are publicly acknowledged. You have value. You bring worth to this organization. And Coma Ford, the author, she says this, and she agrees with most psychologists, in that in every communication, in every conflict, we are subconsciously either reinforcing or begging for safety, belonging, mattering, or a combination of those. It's neurological, it's primal, there's nothing you can do to override or change this subterranean, subconscious programming as much as you may try. The desire, the crave to be what we'll refer to today in biblical terms of righteousness is spread out throughout the world. I think one of the best pictures we have would be in the Garden of Eden. First couple chapters, everything is going wonderfully, right? God creates man and woman in his own image. He dwells in relationship with them. There is harmony. There is perfection. We can't understand the amount of joy that they were experiencing being in relation, being scrutinized by God, being accepted by God, being approved of by God, mattering, having a job, nothing between them, naked and unashamed. They existed in this world. Fast forward a couple chapters, Genesis 3, we know the story. A serpent comes, lies to them, tells them that you don't need God in order to experience all this because, in fact, you are God. And you can write your own rules. And you know what's best for you. They buy into the lie, and it doesn't go great for them. Right? They're they're. They're broken in a relationship with God. They're naked and now ashamed. And at that point, there is a huge gaping void that they feel that pushes them to a place where they have to cover up their shame with fig leaves. And they feel that. And you and I still feel that. Even though Jesus has come, even though Jesus has been our substitute and accepted us and called us in and made us his children. And, and I know that we still feel this because I sometimes will look at Instagram and we're constantly presenting ourselves in a way to where we can be accepted, where we can appear to have value and be hashtag blessed 
24-7. And to look like we're on vacation just living the dream 24-7. We want to be righteous. This is the reason why we're defensive when somebody comes to us with loving instruction and says, hey, I think this might be best for you to go this route, and we want to bow up. So are you kidding me? I know what's best for me. It's the reason why we have to talk about our accolades and our degrees and our grades all the time. To the point where everybody around you, it's absurd, everybody around you knows, shut up. Stop talking about how great you are. But we don't even see it. We're blind because that craving, that desire to be righteous dwells inside of us. So, all of that to say, that's my intro. And you need to understand this piece before we can understand the story of what we're about to read. Because Jesus tells a story, he tells a parable with the assumption that we understand, yeah, we all desire to be righteous. We all want this. I get that. So let that soak in a little bit. We desire to be righteous. And then we've got a story about two men, opposite ends of the spectrum, totally different reputations in a society. And they're pursuing the same thing by going up to the temple. So let's read one more time. I know it was read earlier, but some missed it. And it wouldn't be bad to read it again, even if you've already heard it. Luke 18, 9 through 14. He also, he being Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat on his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Two guys going up to a temple to attempt to gain righteousness. And Jesus begins the pattern of storytelling that he so often does, the shocking pattern of storytelling. The storytelling where the good guy is actually the bad guy and the bad guy is actually the good guy. The guy that is the social outcast, immoral, he's the one that's made right with God and the one who is socially respected, has his junk together and appears closest to God is rebuked by God. There is two main fundamental differences between these two guys. One man, the Pharisee, does this, and this is huge. This is the point of the story. The Pharisee attempts to give God his righteousness, and the other wants God to give him the righteousness. One attempts to give it. The other one pleads to receive it. 
It is a difference in those two that eternity hinges on. And Jesus is going to explain it a little better in the story as we continue. The Pharisee, when we hear Pharisee, I think typically because we live in this culture, we don't have Pharisees. We don't feel the weight of what Jesus was talking about. We don't feel the, oh, that's awkward. He just said that. We think Pharisee, we think somebody that walks around looking down his nose at everyone. We think if a Pharisee walked in the room, we'd all go, here he comes. Stay away from him, that self-righteous jerk. That's what we think. But in this day, that was not the case. A Pharisee was someone who was um, pursuing social justice. A Pharisee was someone who was generous with his money. A Pharisee was someone who labored and poured over God's word in order to better know God. A Pharisee was a man who practiced discipleship regularly with younger men. That's the profile of a Pharisee. Think of it like this. This is actually when I'm reading with my kids and talking to them about a Pharisee, I just use the word pastor. He was a pastor. He was an elder. He was a renowned author, Christian author. He speaks at conferences. It's that guy that Jesus is then taking and making a caricature just about of him. I mean, it's a joke. This guy's prayer is a joke. And Jesus is purposely trying to reveal the self-righteousness that exists within this pastor or this Pharisee. Not a pastor like me, of course, but, or anyone at Stonegate. Um, so there, there's really four things that we see. The profile of a self-righteous man, the profile of a Pharisee. First one is this. A self-righteous man attempts to offer his good works to God as currency or payment with a desire to receive righteousness in return. In this story, he refers to himself, literally, the word I, five times in his prayer. says God one time. I was looking at this and I was thinking, you know, even if you took the word God out or Lord out, it actually still makes sense. Dear myself, I thank you that I am not like these other men, extortioners, unjust. I do this. I do that. He is presenting his resume before God with hopes that God will say, yeah, I accept you now. Romans 10.3, Paul says this, for being ignorant, and he's talking about the Jews, the ones, the chosen people, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Paul is saying that when we attempt to bring our righteousness before God and say, here it is, we are actually coming out from the submissive righteousness, coming out from underneath his submission presenting our own righteousness and missing all the righteousness. It's not enough to please him, and you don't get his righteousness. You get nothing. 
One of the great indicators, I feel like, and it's just a little thing, but it probably presents itself to us on a weekly basis. One of the indicators that we do and feel that we are, you know, one of the reasons we know we're, we're operating and functioning this way is because I would guarantee you that there has been a time in the last couple of weeks where you were going to approach God, you were going to do something, but you hesitated or you didn't spend time in prayer because of the sin that exists in your life or the, the areas where you know you've fallen short. And so all of a sudden, God is not approachable to you. You tremble with the thought of like, oh man, I at least need to have a couple good days before I can really pour in and press into Jesus. That is an indicator that you actually think you're bringing something to him and that he will give you something back, his presence, himself, his righteousness. It's just a little thing, but we still do this. Jesus has come, Jesus has died, Jesus has said, you're mine, and we still resort back to this at times. The second picture of a self-righteous man is that he compares himself to others. I've heard it said as comparative righteousness. The standard of God's righteousness is not the average human being and the amount of sin that they output. What I mean by that is looking at other people and going, uh, they're pretty bad, I'm not that bad, that guy's super good, and I'm kind of in the middle, I'm doing all right. That's not the standard of righteousness and holiness that God's calling you to. He's calling you to perfection, and the prayer of the Pharisee is filled with comparative righteousness, which leads to contempt. If I put this other person down, I look better. Because righteousness doesn't have to do with God. It has to do with my performance. Therefore, I'm going to redefine the rules. I'm the one that is righteous because he or she is not. And then you begin to talk about people. And then you begin to really judge people in your heart and condemn them so that you feel a lot better about yourself. Embarrassing story. Um, stories. Uh, my wife and I have been in ministry for about eight years, and you just see a lot of crazy in vocational ministry. There's just no way around it. There's just crazy that exists. And um, I realized that a lot of times when I, off and on in my ministry with my wife, um, that I will talk about people in the name of we need to pray for them, we need to, but I'll just keep talking about it. Like, can you believe it? I mean, God, God is so merciful to them. You know, like, I can't believe he hasn't struck them with lightning and this sort of thing. It just goes on and on and on. And there was one day I was t doing that, and I was talking to my wife, and I just said, I know this is really sick, but I think I enjoy this a little bit right now. I think I kind of enjoy knowing that that person's a mess and that I'm not that bad. And so I think we all tend to do that on some level. I was, I was very thankful that the Lord revealed it to me. Spirit came, convicted me, told them to bless them rather than put them down and then to repent for my own sin. And that's what I did and and I began to find that I have actually more of a heart and a love for these people when I do that. Because every good thing, as Psalm 16 tells us, comes from God. What do I stand on? 
The self-righteous always write their own law. Pharisee explains that he is tithing according to the Mosaic law, that he is not an adulterer, he's keeping the commandments, he's not a thief. And then he slips something else in his resume that he's offering to God. In verse 12, he says, I fast twice a week. I know that Jesus included this in here for a reason. This was not a mistake. That there is actually, um, the command was to fast once a year during the Day of Atonement. And he's now elevating the law and making himself look like he's the lawgiver and he's the law keeper. And I think we need to understand, first of all, this is just a really good nugget. If the Bible doesn't call it sin, it's not sin. If the Bible doesn't say this is law, then it's not law. And a self-righteous man will write his own law, again, in order to elevate himself, to know that he can keep it and others can't. And we do this all the time, guys. I don't know why I talked about this in first service, but I'm going to talk about it again. It's not in my notes. Um, Having kids, you know, you uh, go through the whole process of birth and, like, um, breastfeeding and um, how they trying to get them to sleep through the night. And I have seen, I think moms might give a hearty amen to this, I have seen this become a law. You don't do an epidural. Whatever you do, that's unhealthy, blah, blah, blah. And, and, it, and that's fine. Opinions are fine, and they're not bad. But it becomes this condemning weight when someone does it. So I just start telling people that we breastfeed our kids till they're nine. <laughs> and they left me alone after that. It's these little things that we elevate. It's secondary doctrines that all of a sudden we call right or wrong. We call unrighteous or righteous, unholy, holy, sin, righteousness. We elevate things. We fence the law. I remember one time I was preaching at a church uh, with some older folks there, and um, I was actually on staff of this church, and I was preaching in jeans. And I felt like, man, I, it went well, you know, and, and seemed to be received well and everything. And I was stepping down off the stage, and there was a man visibly, like, angry. He was, like, shaking. And I was like, hey, how's it going? And he said, not well. I said, why not? And he said, you're preaching in jeans. And I said, yeah, but that's better than not preaching in anything, don't you think? That's a whole other issue that God's working on my heart with. Um, and he said, you are the blind leading the blind when you do that. I said, well, I'm the blind, but according to the verse you just quoted, you're the blind too. So, and he, and he was. But we elevate ourselves by creating our own law that we can keep and we can go around judging others and condemning them and making them feel guilty. And that's exactly what the Pharisee was doing. Finally, what a self-righteous man does is he focuses on the external. You want to know if someone is bringing law to you, if they're condemning you, if they're a legalist? Listen to some of the words they say. Are they talking about heart issues? 
or are they talking about external? A lot of times that's a really good indicator. Listen to your own words sometimes. Am I getting to the heart? Jesus is constantly getting to the heart. Everything that this Pharisee does and he brags about in his prayer can be seen from the external. Everything. And he wants everybody to know as he's talking about it. But Jesus kind of flips that whole law-keeping thing on its head in Matthew 5. You guys know this, right? Sermon on the Mount. When he, oh, okay, so you're not committing adultery? That's great. Have you ever lusted before? Have you ever had impure thoughts about another woman or another man? Oh, so you did commit adultery then, because that's what it is. It's the same sin. It's the same thing. Different levels, different consequences, all guilty. Oh, okay, you've never, like, shanked someone before? Good, good for you. Have you ever been angry at them and had sort of murderous thoughts at times? Because you've killed them when you did that. That's murder. Same thing. He elevates it so high that we get to a place where we realize, I can't do it. And it's so kind of him to do that. It is so kind of him to do that. Because when you start pressing into the heart, I'm talking about humility, talking about pride, talking about character and integrity and the moments when you're doing things that nobody else can see, you know those moments that I'm talking about. God watches all of it, and he's intently looking at your heart and your motivation for why you do what you do. And the self-righteous Pharisee failed royally. It's really easy to hide behind our good theology. It's really easy to hide behind our good works at times. And I'm not saying that those things are bad, they're wonderful, but they really should be flowing out of a heart of gratitude what Jesus has done. Home group, if you're not in one, I would say get in one. Um, Stonegate does a great job. I was telling Travis earlier, man, he, he is not afraid to get up in your biz. And he will, and it's cool, after it gets awkward. And you're really thankful that he did that. Um, but what he, he'll do at times is he's not satisfied with an answer that I'll give him. You know, I'm doing pretty good, this or that. And he just starts digging and pressing a little bit out of love to the point where I'm like, man, I'm a pretty screwed up individual, you know. I'm pretty dysfunctional. But it's a sense of relief because I realize, man, I don't have to keep this freaking law. And I keep failing, but Jesus keeps being faithful for me on my behalf. So... Profile of a Pharisee, self-righteous man. Let's take a look at the tax collector for a minute. This isn't a guy that scrapes a little off the top. That we're like, man, this guy could totally serve about six months in probably a white-collar, you know, institution. This is a thief. This is a criminal. I think when we hear the word tax collector, we don't have that in our regular routine of life, you know. Kind of, but not like this. This man is a guy who is typically a Jew working under the Roman Empire, working for the Romans. And what he's doing is he's going around and he's taking the money from his own people, the Jews, in order to fund the Roman Empire, which then the Roman Empire would in turn suppress and rule over the Jews in a very horrible and evil way because they hated him. 
So you got a guy that's Jew, funding to the Romans, being suppressed. On top of that, he's taking more money than he's supposed to to line his pockets. So he's rich. He's rocking a lot of bling walking around. And every time people see him, what they're reminded of is that guy's a traitor to our own people. And he's wearing all that bling. And he's got that nice house because he stole money from us so that we could continue to be suppressed. I think like a better comparison of a tax collector than even thinking IRS or whatever would be maybe someone who supports sex trafficking. Maybe um, a traitor to our own country who is supplying um, other nations that don't like us very much with a lot of ammunition. Uh, Maybe even somebody who... um, Maybe even someone who would kidnap and hold your child ransom or something. I mean, this is the level of hatred that these people felt when they saw the tax collector. This is the guy that Jesus is talking to. And it's this guy that also goes up to pray. And this guy goes up to pray, and his prayer, I'm just telling you, would be super super awkward if you were like in a prayer meeting and he was like, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He can't even look up. And it is not polished. It is not smooth. It is a pleading and a begging. Shame. It says he can't even look up to the heavens. He stood away from people. And he begins beating his chest and crying out, not just for God to be merciful, but the word is actually to atone for my sins, O Lord. Something else that's really interesting in this translation is that it says, be merciful to me, a sinner. But in its original writings, what we find is it says, the sinner. So you've got a guy that sees nobody else around him. All he sees is the holiness of God and the depravity of his own reputation and life and his soul. And he says, I'm the only one in this room. I am the guy. I am the guilty. I am the one who deserves to die and needs and begs and pleads for God's grace. I am the Sinner, be merciful to me. There is no comparing there. All he's comparing to is God. And it brought him to this place. He doesn't go up to the temple to give God a single thing. He goes up to the temple, and I love the way Rodney will say this oftentimes, with the empty hands of faith. And he says, I just want to receive. I just want what you have to give me. And verse 14 should evoke something in your heart that is joy inexplainable. And that is, I tell you this, this man went down to his house justified. This man got my righteousness. God looks at him 
and he says, you are the sinner, but it's okay. It's going to be all right. You have been scrutinized by me, and you have passed. You are too ashamed to look to heaven, but I'm telling you now, I approve of you. You are standing far off, but come near, son. You belong to me. The good guy is the bad guy, and the bad guy is really the good guy. This is the pattern that we see, not just in Jesus' stories, but in the whole kingdom of God that is made up of ex-murderers, of whores, of tax collectors, of sinners, of people who if we saw them walk in this room right now and try to join us in worship, you would have a sense of, what is he doing here? What is she doing here? The kingdom of God is made up of these people and it's made up of a lot of us in this room right now. That's our company. That's who Jesus includes. The empty hands of faith receiving his righteousness as a gift. Grace is more radical and absurd than you will ever know. It is extremely frustrating, but it's extremely wonderful. I think Tolian Chavidjan says it very well in a book. Grace is a divine vulgarity that stands caution on its head. It refuses to play it safe and lay it up. Grace is recklessly generous, uncomfortably promiscuous. It doesn't use sticks, carrots, or time cards. It doesn't keep score. It refuses to be controlled by our innate sense of fairness, reciprocity, and even-handedness. It defies logic. It has nothing to do with earning, merit, or deservedness. It is opposed to what is owed. It doesn't expect a return on investments. It is a liberating contradiction between what we deserve and what we get. Grace is unconditional acceptance given to an undeserving person by an unobligated God. How true is that? Grace, my friends, is extremely unfair, and it's all in our favor. One of my favorite pictures of this is Paul, right? Paul used to be Saul used to murder Christians, used to take big rocks and crush their skulls with it and was on a mission and sent out people to go find them and split families up in prison and murder them. And it's this guy that God calls in to write the majority of the New Testament books um, to help launch church and to be the greatest missionary of our t- uh, that we'll ever know. I think, man, we have some awkward moments in home group. I don't think anything was like some of those meetings that he had where he's up there standing, talking to them, and they're saying, what did you say your name was? He says, Paul, oh, good, I thought you said Saul because my brother was stoned to death by this dude named Saul. Anyways, never mind, don't worry. Oh, actually, yeah, that used to be me. 
We should probably grab a cup of coffee after this and talk that one out a little bit. That's the guy. That's the guy that's now teaching them about the love of the Father. (laughs) That's the guy that says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If anybody understood what grace looks like, what righteousness looks like in the kingdom of God, it's Saul turned to Paul. Now communicating to people the love of Christ, knowing that he probably tortured some of them. And Jesus, as he's telling the story, is literally on his way to Jerusalem, knowing that he's going to be crushed for us. Knowing that all of these words are going to be true because of his obedience. And and the torture and the torment that he is about to walk into. God's grace is radical. And I think it's easy for us at times to try to put a governor on it because we're afraid that people will abuse it. If I show this guy too much grace, man, he's going to run all over me. First off, he probably will. If you're in Christ and you are practicing the love and the grace and the mercy extended to others as Christ did to you, you will be taken advantage of. It's going to happen. And then it's in that moment you rejoice because you're in good company. But we put a governor on it. The other thing is we're not responsible for the way that people respond to the grace that we offer them. That's not our job. My job is to not decide, you know what, I'm not going to give you so much grace right now because I don't think I'm liking the way that you're going to respond to that. That's not your job. Our job is to be Christ, is to pour ourselves out for them, to love them in a way that is, makes them angry. How could you do this? Is our grace shocking to people? Because this is shocking grace that we're talking about here. And when we receive God's salvation, when we think of this, when we pray this, when we live this out as a free gift that is not earned, it's just simply received in the moment of my darkest, darkest secrets, I am exploding with righteousness before Christ. When we get that, we start loving other people. It's it's a level of love. It's really the only way we offer love, real love. Jesus is love. In him encompasses all of it. And on the other hand, the law will always drive us away. There's a, a great, man, a great quote by a guy named Steve Brown. And this is actually directed toward parents, but I think the principle applies to all of us. And he says this, Children will run from law and they'll run from grace. The ones who run from law never come back. The ones who run from grace always come back. Grace draws its own back home. If there are any Pharisees out there, let me just encourage you with something. I was a Pharisee. Grew up in a Christian home, led Bible studies, 
parents loved Jesus, took me to church, drank organic orange juice, recycled, did it all. Got to a place where I realized it's not enough. I would sit in church and I, I would literally feel sick to my stomach knowing that the week's about to start and I don't come close to, to passing the scrutiny that I feel in life. I don't feel accepted. I just have to earn it. I have to try harder. And it eventually caught up with me and I just said, forget it. I'm done with this. And there was, wasn't blatant things in my life, but it was by God's grace, if he wouldn't have stopped me, it would have gotten a lot worse. But I started down this road of just getting in bad relationships with girls and doing just a lot of things that, you know, I'd never done before, you know, toward the end of high school into college. And, and uh, it was my freshman year. My buddy calls me up. He's quite a bit older than me. And he calls me up and he says, hey, dude, I had you on the heart and I uh, just wanted to see if you want to come do prison ministry with me. So I'm like, well, I'm kind of over the church thing right now, so I'll try prison out, see what happens. Plus, they could probably really benefit from the gift I have to offer them. Um, and so I, I show up and, you know, there's a, it was an, I mean, an intimidating situation. And I'm thinking, man, I, I probably got some street cred if I talk this way, do this thing. And I'm trying to kind of maintain this image here. And um, in the middle of it, this guy gets up, and, and it's prison. I mean, it's not jail. These guys are in there. They've done some really bad things. And this guy gets up, and he starts just quoting by memory Ephesians 2. And it was in that moment that something struck me, which was the Holy Spirit, and it wasn't an audible voice, but what I heard was the difference between you and that guy is that he has recognized his sin and he's repented of it. And I have accepted it. I literally tossed all street cred aside, began to sob in prison around all these inmates in jumpsuits. And I was so thankful I wasn't wearing a jumpsuit. Now I'm surrounded by guys in jumpsuits laying their hands on me, the one that was supposed to minister to them, and they're praying for me. And they're reminding me of God's grace and his mercy. And he can forgive you from your self-righteousness, you punk. That's probably what they were thinking. They didn't say that. That would have been kind of awesome if they did. And I'm, I'm literally like <laughs> doing this. And I think it was just the most beautiful picture of what the kingdom of God looks like where the good guy is actually the bad guy, and the bad guy is actually made good. That's what it's all about. That's, who, that's the family we exist in. Bad guys made good who come to the Lord not to give him a single thing other than our empty hands of faith and just ask for his mercy, plead for his mercy, because we know we are the sinner. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful, Lord. I'm so humbled. Um, it's just such a weird experience when we talk about grace. Because in one sentence, it's telling us we're nothing and we can't do it. And in the other one, it's telling us that you love us as much as you love Jesus. That you see the same righteousness in us as in him. Lord, I, I just ask that that would become more and more real to us all. Lord, that we could begin living a life of tax collector caliber gratitude. 
We could love people, Lord, and we could know that the only comparison that matters is us to you, and Jesus stands between us. He stands between us pleading our case, and it is received by you. Love you. Thank you so much for this good news. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.